0: Two former U.S. Patent and Trademark Office directors, one from the Obama administration and one from the Trump administration, recently formed a coalition. Its aim, protection of U.S. intellectual property, particularly from theft by China. And they've got ideas for what Congress ought to do. Joining me with more, the co-chairman of the Council for Innovation Promotion and former U.S. PTO director, Andre Yanko. Andre, good to have you back with us.
1: Great to be with you, Tom.
0: And we should point out David Kapos, who was your predecessor under the Obama administration, is your co-chair in this effort. But you're calling it the Council for Innovation Promotion rather than Innovation Protection. So why that title?
1: Well, those two things are very much related, obviously. The main goal is economic growth in the United States through innovation. So the main goal is to promote innovation and to grow innovation in the United States. Obviously, protecting intellectual property is a tool in that effort. It is, in our view, the most critically important necessary tool, but nevertheless, it's just one tool. Other factors would go into promoting innovation other than IP, but IP is critically important to the ultimate goal which is to grow American-based innovation.
0: And you mentioned two facts in some of the write-ups. One is that China is leading the United States in the sheer number of patents it files for some of the critical technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum, and so on. And yet at the same time, it is stealing intellectual property from the united states on that latter point what is their mechanism simply seeing what we file for patents ignoring the patents taking the art and just using it without paying people fees or is it more like a cyber theft into the intellectual property that is maybe not patented but under development by u.s corporations or maybe a little of both
1: yeah the theft is prolific tom and there are multiple mechanisms One example mechanism is through the forced transfer of technology from American companies doing business in China, forcing companies to partner with Chinese-based companies through which IP is appropriated by state-owned enterprises. There are a variety of other examples, purely copying American IP and then not having a robust enforcement mechanism within China for American companies to be able to defend their IP. Finally, to the vast economy of counterfeit goods, more than 80 percent of counterfeit goods in the international trade channels come from China and its territories. And the Chinese government is doing very little, if anything, to stop it or to reduce it. And this is ongoing and has been ongoing for a good number of years. And all of these activities absolutely have to stop.
0: So it's really also a trademark as well as a patent issue.
1: Absolutely. Very much so. It's all of IP, but definitely very much a patent and trademarks at the forefront.
0: And just briefly review the system internationally of patents, because there is cross, I guess, uh, recognition of patent systems between the United States and other nations like us. Japan honors U.S. patents and vice versa. I think there's about half a dozen nations that interoperate. Where does China fit into that whole picture?
1: Actually, Tom, patents are territorial, so an American patent is defensible only in the United States, a Japanese patent only in Japan, and so on. And, you know, for an American company, for example, that wants to protect its patented technology in the United States, it needs to get an American patent. If at the same time wants to protect its patent in Japan, it should get the Japanese patent. Same thing applies to China. So if it wants to protect its IP, its patents in China, it needs to apply for and get a Chinese patent. But then, of course, in all of these jurisdictions, there have to be robust mechanisms for enforcing those patents issued by those specific governments. You know, the vast majority of the world has a robust, transparent enforcement system like the United States, Japan, South Korea, uh, all the European countries and so on. In China, it's different. It's not all that transparent. It's not uniformly robust. And these are issues that need to be worked on.
0: All right. We're speaking with Andre Yanku, former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and now co-chairman of the newly formed Council for Innovation Promotion. You've got a prescription that maybe we can get at this as a country through some congressional action. What are your recommendations? I guess we're talking about the 118th Congress now, which has already got lots on its plate.
1: Yes. Um, although I have to tell you, Tom, that when there's lots of division in Congress and nobody can agree on anything, Sometimes they agree on IP, which is a good thing. It's a bipartisan issue. And if they need to get something done, sometimes they reach into IP. So I am hopeful that progress can be made in the next Congress. Look, we have to recognize that China has a two-pronged approach to technological dominance into this and next centuries. So first is the stealing of IP, as we have discussed, which has to stop. But at the same time, we must recognize that the Chinese are actually inventing at faster and faster rates. And that is their original innovation. Uh, We know the technologies they're investing in because they tell us, and they're made in China 2025, 2030 plans and beyond. And it's not just China. A lot of other countries are innovating and competing for a piece of the technological pie for the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, like AI, like quantum and so on. The United States, if we want to maintain our technological edge, we must double down and compete at the same time. We have to very much increase our innovation multiple fold. And to that end, we need to think about what are all the factors that go into increasing innovation and we need to address them in a systematic manner. None of it can happen without first strengthening our IP system. If there is a member of Congress that goes around and says that they are for innovation, They must automatically be for a robust intellectual property system. You simply cannot maintain that you are for American innovation and at the same time vote for bills that weaken the American intellectual property ecosystem. Those two things are highly interrelated and one cannot go without the other. So at the very minimum, we have to maintain a strong IP system here. How do we do that? There are a lot of factors that go into that calculus. There are a number of bills that need to be pushed through. An example is a bill that Senator Tillis introduced in the last Congress. I suspect he'll introduce it again in this Congress. Senator Coons said that he would co-sponsor it as well, so it's nice to see bipartisanship. And it deals with what's called patentable subject matter what types of innovations are subject to the patent system in the first place. This area of law needs significant clarification, and it's good to see that some senators are taking a leading role in addressing that issue.
0: Got it. And so, as you point out, this is bipartisan, so there is a good chance. I'm surprised that the areas of development that are subject to patent law are unclear at this point, 200 Mm -hmm. years into this experiment.
1: Yes, indeed so, and you're not the only one that is surprised. (laughs) America has the first modern democratic patent system in the world and here we are a couple centuries later where we have sort of lost focus on this fundamental issue what's happened tom is that in the past couple of decades the supreme court issued a number of decisions on this threshold question what is subject to patent and what isn't subject to patent i'll give you an example diagnostic techniques we're very familiar with this issue because of the recent COVID pandemic Diagnostic tests, you know, where you swab and you decide, you know, the test tells you whether you do or you don't have COVID, that's a diagnostic test based on the recent Supreme Court jurisprudence. Diagnostic tests are not subject to the patent system in the United States. It's absolutely remarkable, but that is the status quo, and it's the result of the confusion created by recent Supreme Court cases as interpreted by the lower courts in the years since. That issue has to be clarified by Congress.
0: We were talking about updating the types of intellectual property that could be considered patentable. And from what you said, things like methods as well as technologies or new chemicals or new medicines themselves, methodologies in variety of domains then would be necessary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously drugs, pills, treatments, those are available for patent. But the method of detecting a disease currently is not patentable in the United States. It's not the only thing. As a result of the recent Supreme Court case law, for example, it's very unclear if certain forms of computer software are subject to patents. For example, issues dealing with cybersecurity or cryptography, for example, that are heavily based on mathematical calculations. Not so clear from patent to patent, from technology to technology ahead of time. If, you know, you invest money in this area, you develop a new technology, file for a patent, not so clear if the courts would enforce that patent down the line. That's another example that needs to be clarified because the technologies of the future very much depend on these methodologies. Think about artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles. A lot of this new technology depends on heavy mathematical calculations and algorithms There has to be a way to be able to determine clearly whether your investment will be protected or not.
0: Yeah, that's interesting on the software one. That has some historical precedent because I think it was the IBM company way, way back in the 1960s that argued against patents for software because Mm -hmm. they wanted their machines to sell and they would give you the software that came with the machine. That all reversed at some point. And I'm surprised that argument is still going on.
1: It is, you know, Tom, software is, it's a funny type of a technology because it's not perfectly clear which area of IP it fits in. Is it really subject to copyright? And it is in some circumstances. Is it subject to patent? And it is in some circumstances. But it's never been made crystal clear what is the best and most clear approach for protecting software. The reason for this, and not to get too philosophical in our short time together here, but the reason for this is that software by itself actually doesn't do anything, right? Patents usually are for things that do stuff. You know, in the old days, they used to call them the useful arts, making things work, products, machines, processes, and so on. Software needs to be combined with a computer, obviously, to start doing stuff. And that's what's leading to this somewhat confusing area of law, because on its own, it's just zeros and ones, either on a piece of paper or residing in some sort of a machine without doing much of anything.
0: I guess you could say the same thing about chemical compounds. They're just combinations of carbon, oxygen and hydrogen atoms in different sulfur atoms, but yet they don't do anything to you add water or add them to gasoline or add them to some yeah. other process to cause a catalytic change. So yes, we are on fuzzy ground there, I guess you might say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if this radio thing doesn't work out, uh, you're welcome to the patent profession, because you seem to be putting your finger right on the crux of the issue. You know, what's happening is chemical compounds or many other things that if you just leave them alone, don't do anything. they are things that you can touch. They are things that you can see. They're physical. And courts and legislators forever, human beings forever have been used to tangible products and technologies software you can't see you know it is intangible it's transient to some extent and i feel that to a large extent is my personal view courts and others have had a tough time grappling with it because it is the ultimate form of intangible intellectual development now you're right ultimately it's the same thing ultimately it's human made and it's done for a purpose to do something and You know, once it operates on a computer, it absolutely does something very important, even if you cannot see it, even if you cannot touch it. And my personal view is that obviously it needs to be protected, but this needs to be clarified and the rules of the game have to be made crystal clear so that inventors and investors have some predictability that what they will be doing will be protectable, and under what parameters.
0: We're speaking with Andre Yanku, former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and now co-chairman of the newly formed Council for Innovation Promotion. Yes, because you can see where software, again, to pull on that thread a little further, underlies so many of the advances. Let's take hypersonics, for instance. We've been able to move things hypersonically for decades, going back to the 50s. The difference is maybe making them aimable, making them do things that they could not do, mostly as a result of some kind of a software process that in turn affects a mechanical process.
1: Absolutely, those are good examples and and more. Think about autonomous vehicles, the self-driving software that enables vehicles to drive. Those are definitely, you know, it's, it's computer code, it's not tangible, not visible, that's making a very visible, very tangible machine actually do something. And I can't emphasize enough how important Resolving this issue is because the technologies of the future depend on this stuff artificial intelligence Quantum computing and the like you can't uh, you know, cryptography uh, Cybersecurity you can't do any of these things without heavy investment in brand new innovation That's backed by intellectual property because otherwise Who in a free market economy is going to invest the huge amounts of money that's necessary in? risky technologies that are failure-prone, you don't know if it's going to work at the end of the day, but if they do work, they are easily replicable. And you know, if you don't have robust IP protection in a free market economy, investors will not choose to put their hard-earned dollars into these areas. And we as a nation are going to be left behind because primarily our competitor is a centralized economy, a centralized dictatorship that can tell its companies what to do where to invest its money we don't have that luxury we don't want it we want our free market system but we need to have something to incentivize and protect those investments and the only way to do it reliably is through intellectual property protection
0: and a final question you have created a new council the council for innovation promotion in washington Who are your backers? I mean, who's behind this since it is sounding like a very bipartisan effort with you and David Kapos, and there's a couple of lawyers from both sides that are involved with your counsel. Who are your backers?
1: Well, first of all, it is bipartisan. And uh, on the board, it's myself and Dave Kapos, as well as two federal judges, one appointed by a Republican, another by a Democrat. The member role is confidential, so we can't disclose it. But the idea here, Tom, is to impress upon our legislators and decision makers, uh, and the public, that you simply cannot have innovation in the United States at a scale we uh, have been used to without a robust IP system. The two are inextricably linked, and that's the main goal of this council.
0: Andre Janko is co-chairman of the newly formed Council for Innovation Promotion and former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: My pleasure, Tom. Always good to be with you.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on, this, on the Metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I, I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues.
2: And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you.
3: Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say, sort of, deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas. As leaders, we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense.
2: Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started?
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right? To up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now, And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think, is really helpful because it's not one size fits all.
2: Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers sayings. And I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent. And you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service?
3: You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.